The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From Psalm 119, verses 17 and 18. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Let's pray. Father, we lift up our voices to you along with the psalmist and ask you to open our eyes. You have power. You can do that. Would you pour grace on us to open our eyes that we may look at your law and behold wondrous things in it. They're there. Give us grace to see them. We are sojourners on the earth, passing through in need of direction and in need of sustenance. Would you guide and feed us? Use your scriptures towards that end, Father, I pray. You've given them to us, now open them to us and open us to them. Would you commission your spirit to come be here in our midst that we would look at your word and see things there that thrill us, that we marvel at, that that confirm truth in us, that confront us with truth, that encourage us with truth, all the while pointing us back to you that we would delight in you. Would you do that this morning, Father, by your Spirit, to the glory of Christ? I pray that for the good of your church here and for those here who are not yet your church but might be, if you would open their eyes and show them wondrous things in your word too. Do that, I pray, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Back in December, we finished a lengthy sermon series on the book of Acts. And if you were here, you may recall that Acts, one of the themes running throughout all of Acts is this constant push or call to the people of God and to the church as a whole to look out beyond itself and to see those out there and to care for them and to reach out to them and to bring Christ to them. It's a common theme through Acts. And one significant thing that we saw is that towards that end, to empower that, God has given to his people, individually and corporately, he's given the Holy Spirit to us. Power in our hearts for the sake of making Jesus an issue in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And one of the ways that the Spirit does that is that he works on us as a community to make us as a people Individually, but then as a, as a group, the type of community that reflects him accurately. That displays what a people after God look like. How they act, what they value. How they live with one another and how they care about other people. And that theme right there, the Spirit of God remaking the people of God into the individuals and the community that we are supposed to be, that theme is the theme to which we now turn as we move to a new series in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the fifth book of Moses, the last book of of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses. Deuteronomy is the last one. It's a book in the Old Testament law. It's a book about God shaping a holy community. Binding a people together to make them a holy people. And as such, we have much to learn there. The law is good. And as Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man, woman, who meditates on it day and night. Because it will prosper that person. The law is good. But we have to approach it with some care. Because while it's true that all Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, all the Scripture is, the law included, we do stand at a a particular place in time now, in salvation history now. We are after the coming of Christ. And so 
some things have been altered a little bit. Some things have changed. And we have to approach the law with care. So we'll do that, but we approach it with a, a knowledge that there is good there that will prosper us. And to kind of help us do that, we're actually going to, this morning, begin a series on Deuteronomy in the book of Romans. We're going to look at a passage in Romans that will begin to shape our, our minds and help us to kind of come at the law from the proper perspective. So our text for this morning is actually in the New Testament, the book of Romans, chapter 9, verse 30, through chapter 10, verse 4. And obviously, if we're coming in at the end of chapter 9, we're coming in in the middle of an argument. Paul's been writing for quite some time by the time we get to our text for this morning. Generally, what he's been discussing throughout chapter 9 is, is a question. He's been unfolding the gospel and, and displaying the glory of Christ's work to save a people, but he's dealing with a question. Well, okay, Paul, you've realized, you've come to this point of realizing that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, and you've trusted him and embraced him. He's the Messiah. But most of Israel hasn't. Why not? And there were thousands of Jews who believed. I mean, thousands and thousands. The early church was all Jewish, but it didn't take very long for it to get balanced, or out of balance, if you will, with Gentiles becoming the, the dominant number in the church. That didn't take very long. And so people raised a, kind of a natural question. If he's the Messiah of Israel, how come Israel doesn't see him, but the Gentiles do? So Paul's answering that in Romans 9, and and his first answer to it throughout Romans 9 is it's because of the sovereign will of God. It's God's plan. That's why it's happening like that. He's doing it. But in our text for this morning, 9.30 and on into chapter 10, he gives a second answer. Because as is commonly the case, God has a plan that he is sovereignly carrying out, but he uses providentially working. We saw this in the book of Acts often. He providentially works through ordinary means, including people. So his second answer is dealing with the people themselves, Israel. And essentially it is that Israel, why hasn't Israel embraced Jesus as Messiah? Because they've misunderstood something. They've missed something important, something that will be helpful for us to catch as we turn eventually to Deuteronomy in the weeks and months to follow. That's where we're going this morning. Let me read the passage, Romans 9.30 through 10.4. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For, being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In looking at this passage today, I'm going to approach it from two, di two distinct perspectives. As I said, I'm going here as a lead-in to the book of Deuteronomy, and so there are some things here that I want to connect to Deuteronomy, and I'm going to do that largely at the end, although it'll be sprinkled throughout. But in the first part, we need to deal with this passage within Romans as a passage that has something to say in this context, something to say to us today. I'm going to spend actually most of the time on the passage in Romans itself. And towards that end, here's, here's the theme of the passage. It's my main point for this morning. God has provided righteousness. God has provided righteousness that we are to receive by faith. God's given something, sent something, provided righteousness that we human beings are to receive by faith. I'm going to start by 
unpacking that first part, but what you'll notice is that this has always been the case, even in the law. Start with the first part about God providing. He's provided righteousness in Christ. The first point, God has provided righteousness in Christ. The most important word in this passage is obviously the word righteousness. It occurs eight times in the original language in these eight verses. Now, depending on your translation, you might have some pronouns substituted in here and there. But it's everywhere in this passage. And in fact, it's everywhere in the book of Romans. It's what Romans is about, really. Righteousness. You can just thumb back through and you can see all the times that that word appears. And it's even more common when you realize that other words that are related to righteousness, in English doesn't appear to us to be the case, but in the original language of Greek, you could look at them and say, oh, that's obviously the same word family. Words like justify, justification. It's all the same word family and it's all over Romans. Paul's got righteousness on the brain. So what is it? What is righteousness? Well, it can refer to particular activities, righteous behaviors, things like telling the truth, sharing your resources, living in sexual purity, not stealing, basic ethical moral behaviors, actions. Those things are righteous. That's righteousness, and it, it can be used that way. It is used that way in literature. That's not what it means here, though. The other, way this way, the other way this word is used in literature, and the vast majority of the way that it's used in Romans and in this passage, is to describe not behaviors or actions, but a status, a standing before a court. It was actually a, a legal concept, such that you could look at a, a person that was on trial before maybe a judge or a governor or the Caesar or, or a city council or something like that, and their two verdicts were condemned or justified, righteous. Those are the two ways it could go. So it's essentially like not guiltiness. It's not about your behaviors per se, it's about you. Are you standing as righteous? not guilty before this judge. In the Bible, of course, God is the judge. So the question is one of not guiltiness, righteousness before God, your status, your standing before God. That's what's in view here in this text. We can tell because of verse 30. Verse 30, Paul says that the Gentiles had not sought righteousness, and he can't mean righteous behaviors because everybody knew that plenty of Jews sought to live quite morally with very high ethics. Not all of them, of course, but but they had ethical and moral standards that they sought to live to, just like today. There are plenty of people who seek to be good people, try to be moral and upright in some way or another. Gentiles were no exception, but they did not seek. What they didn't seek was righteous standing before God, the true God, the God of the Bible. Sometimes they had idols or various gods and goddesses that they would worship, but they did not seek to be in right standing, not guilty before the God of the Bible. That's what Paul's got in view here. So they weren't seeking, but they should have been. And we should be. Being made righteous before God, or to use the verb, being justified, is so important. Think about what this would mean in your life, or what it does mean in your life. And you could take the words of Paul from Romans 5 to see it. There he's talking about someone who is standing righteous in righteousness before God, and what he says of that person should blow us away. What he says is, having become this, having attained this status of righteousness, we stand in grace before God. We stand in grace, not not in wrath, not under his anger, but under his grace, his undeserved blessing and favor poured out on us. And he goes on, he doesn't stop right there. He goes on and says, we have peace with God. Actually, he starts with peace with God. 
not hostility or animosity or conflict, peace with God. And we have joy with God. As we look at the the hope of his glory, all the beauty and the goodness of God come before you and satisfying your heart as you think about that, joy for that hope erupts. And not just joy in that, in fact, he says, joy in all kinds of circumstances. Whether life goes up or down, joy because, as he finishes, the love of God has been poured into your heart as he's given you God, the Holy Spirit, to live inside of you. The spigot turns on when, you're, when your standing is one of righteousness. The spigot turns on and what rushes at you is peace and grace and hope and joy and love. Wow! If you're asleep right now, I'm sorry. Think about that. That is life. It's what life is. That you would stand not at war with God, but at peace. Not under His anger, but under His grace. Not sorrowing, but in joy. Not hated, but loved. All because He looks at you and says, righteous as the judge. He stands and says, you are Righteous. Righteousness. He could say condemned, and he doesn't. He says righteous, and all of that flows onto you. Everything hinges on the verdict of righteousness. Work that into your mind and get past the big words of righteousness and justification and see the life. All of your life here, now, and forever turns on whether or not the judge says you are, before him, righteous. You must have that. It's more important than the air you breathe. The problem is none of us do. None of us do in ourselves. The whole idea in the passage of pursuing righteousness, talks about the Gentiles pursuing it and the Jews pursuing it, implies that it's out there somewhere and I have to go get it because it's not here. Not under the seat cushions, not in my pocket, not in my heart. It's not here. I've got to get it somewhere. It's implied there, and one of the uses of the law is to confirm that. One of the uses of the law is to point out, here is what God the judge judges as righteous. It's a lot like how law works in our day. I mean, theoretically, when we walk into a court in our day, we shouldn't have zero idea how this is going to go. Now, we might, there's obviously an arguing about the facts, but once the facts are established, there's a code to compare them against. In the court of God, there's no arguing about the facts. They're, they're crystal clear. And the code is also clear. That's one of the uses of the law, to hold it up before us and say, this is what righteousness is, and then in the next breath to say, and that's not you. Not by a long shot, not in thought, word, and deed. None of us keep the law. We are lawbreakers through and through. We are not righteous, but in fact, God looks at us and would have to say, Condemned. We need righteousness. All of life hinges on it. That's where grace and hope and love and peace comes from, but we don't have it, and it's not in us. What can be done about this? Can we get it somehow? Well, gloriously, that which we most need and don't have, God does have. He is righteousness defined. Verse 3, down in chapter 10, verse 3 talks about the righteousness that comes from God, God's righteousness. And there's a direction there. God has righteousness, and it comes. It draws near. Not in us. We're reaching for it. God has it, and He's going to send it. It will draw near. God's going to provide righteousness. He sends it to us, plopping it down in our midst like a huge boulder right in the middle of a trail. A rock that he lays in Zion. 
It's the point of the, the quote from the book of Isaiah. He, Paul actually quotes two different passages from Isaiah 8 and 28, both of them talking about God laying a rock, a stone, a, a foundation piece. He's creating a permanent building. And in chapter 8, he makes clear that it's him himself. I will be the rock. He's going to come and drop right down in the midst of the people like a huge stone in the middle of a trail. And it will be either, as the passages both hold up these two options, it'll be either good or bad, depending on how you go with it. He'll be a sanctuary or a stone of stumbling. It'll be a rock of offense, or for those who believe in him, it'll be rest. Point is, God lays down his righteousness right in front of us. The thing that we most need, he has sent. Who is that rock? You can guess. Christ. God, the righteous one, come down into the midst of Zion. Come right down into the midst of the people. Plain as day, right there. Living, displaying righteous acts all the time because he's righteous. He has no sin in him. Deserving of no punishment, therefore, yet going to the cross anyway to pay for sin. God's righteousness presented to humanity in Christ, just like he said he would. He has come, plopped right down there in front of us. That's the first point that Paul's making. And if you stop there, it does nobody any good. Just to have it provided, just to have this righteousness that we need provided, sent, dropped right in front of you, does no good. We need the second point as well. Here's the second point. Pursue this righteousness. Obviously, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles both pursuing the righteousness Pursue this righteousness by faith and not as if it were based upon works. Pursue the righteousness that you need and don't have, but God has graciously sent down and provided. Pursue it in faith, not as if it is attained by your own efforts. Reach out and grab hold of it by believing, by trusting, by faith. He makes this point several times. Verse 30, how is it that the Gentiles successfully reached righteousness? By faith. And how is it that the Jews unsuccessfully grabbed hold of this law that would lead to righteousness? Because they misunderstood, thought it was by works and not by faith. 33, how's the proper way to, what's the proper way to respond to this stone here? Believing. Skipping down to verse 3. What does it mean to submit to God's righteousness that he sent? Christ is the end of the law. Righteousness for all who believe. Again and again, Paul's hitting this point. It is by faith and not by works. These are two opposite paths. They are not commingled. By faith... Or by works. And the problem, he says, is that Israel, by and large, misunderstood which path they were supposed to walk, and they walked this one and missed it. Pursue it by faith. The problem is clear. We need righteousness, and we utterly miss it when we misunderstand how we get it. We strive after it and instead seek to establish a righteousness of our own. This is not some ancient problem back in Paul's day. It's not unique to Israel at all. This is today's problem. In every person that you'll ever meet, including you, of all ages, both genders, all races, all ethnic backgrounds, all countries, every religion on the planet, including the religion that lives right next door to you, deals with this issue. As soon as a human being conceives of a God, 
to which that person is responsible, the immediate next step is to try to figure out what can I do to make myself right in that God's eyes? How can I establish my own righteousness? Everywhere on the planet, we set up systems to give our money, to watch our language, to pursue physical chastity or restraint. We set up rituals of cleansing, of baptism, of washing, certain foods that we should eat or shouldn't eat, certain meetings that we should attend, certain prayers that we should say at certain times of the day, in certain ways, including certain things. All of them equally involving some sort of a sacrifice, something that I have to do that I otherwise wouldn't do. Some sort of a sacrifice. So it seems that it's kind of hard and that I'm, I'm actually doing something. But all of them under my control if I'll just concentrate on it, focus. Yeah, I might have to pay a little higher price for some of the higher things, but all of them are in my hands for me to establish my righteousness. And if I do them, I'll be good in this God's eyes. That is universal. And all of it is futile and is in direct opposition to grabbing hold of Christ by faith. All of it leaves us stuck in our unrighteousness, separated from God. With the spigot still turned off and the blessings of God denied us. Because the law actually says, if you break one commandment, you're guilty and a lawbreaker. It's the same way it is in our court today. If you're arrested and hauled before a judge, charged of robbing a bank, it is no argument to say there are hundreds of banks you haven't robbed. We laugh at that because it's foolish. Yet we think that works with God somehow. I I know I've broken all these commandments here, but do you have any idea how many good things I have done? Irrelevant. You break the law, you are a lawbreaker, guilty before God, condemned. Approaching him through any avenue of works still leaves you equally condemned. The only hope is to approach him through Christ and say, I I am guilty. And that, Lord, is why I need your cross sacrifice. I am guilty and the punishment against me, as you have said, is my very life. You are the life giver. I reject your law. Therefore, I forfeit my right to live, physically and spiritually. I say, get away from me. And you say, very well. I'm guilty. That's what I deserve. And I cling to Christ's death on the cross. His payment for my sin. His absorbing your wrath on the cross. And I take in, his pl- in, my, in place of giving him my sin, I take his righteousness. And I clothe myself in that. And so you look at me as clean, forgiven, penalty paid, right in standing. That's my only hope. I trust only to that. And I'm not even going to pretend to try to mix it in with, and do you have any idea how many banks I haven't robbed? That's the only hope. To grab hold of Christ by faith and righteousness will be pronounced on you, on everyone who believes. All who believe in him will not be put to shame. So I plead with you, the Bible pleads with you, if you stand here this morning a lawbreaker, not clinging to Christ alone, Please realize that you are not righteous in the eyes of God. You stand condemned before Him. And there is 
a whole dam's worth of stuff ready to flow onto you if he would just turn the spigot, but he will not as long as you stand condemned. You must be pronounced righteous, and that only happens if you cling to Christ by faith. Do it now, I pray. Turn now to him in your heart, right at this moment. It doesn't take... Ten minutes, it takes that long to say, oh, I'm yours. I'm guilty, forgive me. Trust Christ and all who believe to him will be pronounced righteous in the eyes of God. And most of us have already been pronounced righteous, have been justified by God's grace. What does this mean for you? I mean, this is pretty common stuff, right? You know this. This doctrine, justification by faith, righteousness through faith, this doctrine can radically transform how you live, Christian. You're saved already. I mean, you believe this or you wouldn't be a Christian. You've trusted it, but if you will trust it and appropriate it moment by moment through life, it'll radically change how you live. Here's what I mean. There are days that we live as if we don't believe this. You can see it in how you respond to your sin. How do you respond when somebody maybe directly confronts your sin or kind of implies that they're confronting their sin or maybe you just notice your sin. When your sin becomes apparent to you, how do you respond? Listen to these couple of statements. I once had a conversation with a man. This guy's a a sincere Christian and and he wasn't saying this in some sort of a flippant way. It was sober, real to him. He wasn't boasting of it or anything. I once had a conversation with a man, and as he volunteered information about his own life, he said to me, I am an adulterer. Which kind of sets you back a little bit, because you usually don't hear it quite so plainly. But he said, I am an adulterer. I married my wife, who had been previously divorced in the eyes of the state, but she did not have grounds for divorce in the eyes of God, and so the marriage bond had not been broken. She was still married to that other guy, and I married her and made us both into adulterers. Which is true. Crystal clear in the Bible. Not so crystal clear in many people's eyes, but crystal clear in the Bible. And he owned it. And he said, I'm not boasting this, I'm not flipping about it, but I am an adulterer. I also know a woman and same situation, she's not boasting of this. Um, I actually read this, so she wasn't boasting of when she was writing. But as she described herself, she said, get this, I am a murderer. Three times over. I've taken the lives of three human beings. My own children. I've had three abortions in my life. That's hard to take. That's not even about you. That's just hard to take hearing her say that. And it might hit a little close to home because it might be kind of about you. But that's also crystal clear in the Bible. Unborn babies are people, and to take their lives would then be murder. And she knew that, and she owned it three times over in her life. Talking about her sin. So here's the question. How do you respond to those statements? Even just hearing those statements made by other people about themselves, not even anybody saying that it's true about you, but people generally respond to those statements in one of two different ways put it personally, you and me, you, you either respond to me with an argument, which might be heated or might just be a, a 
a dialogue of disagreement, but an argument, a discussion. Maybe in your mind or, or out loud if we were in a different setting, disputing the facts. Arguing about what the texts actually say. Offering up reasons. Surely he didn't understand what he was doing. Surely she was young and facing difficult circumstances. Surely he loved her when he married her. Surely she was just trying to do what was right. Well, probably. Granted. But besides the point. But you offer up kind of thoughts like that. In other words, you're trying to justify it. There's our word. Justify, justification, righteousness. Trying to establish a righteousness in this situation that's based upon the circumstances or the facts to kind of work them in such a way so that you actually can say, actually, the person is not guilty. He, she, I am okay. There isn't a problem here. It's good. Many respond that way. Others respond in the opposite way. You get buried under the guilt. Particularly if you begin to think about your own marriage situation or your own past. You allow yourself to think about it and you get absolutely buried, crushed, and your heart is just torn to shreds, maybe even sitting here right now. So if, if you're not arguing, the other option is perhaps that you're crushed by it, wallowing in it, being destroyed moment by moment as you keep running it back and forth through your mind. I did that, and oh my word, I did that, oh my word. That's how we commonly respond. We either strive to establish a righteousness of our own, or we accept that condemnation and are destroyed by it. Which way do you more commonly respond? You might identify it by how you're feeling right at this moment. Those are the two paths that people commonly respond, but there is a third path to walk. And it's the path that the Bible, this passage, points us towards. The third option is to preach to yourself about the righteousness of God that was placed on you when you by faith trusted Christ apart from your works. i say that again as you think it through. The third path is to preach to yourself the glorious truth about the righteousness placed on you when you trusted Christ by faith apart from the works of sin in your past for which you were condemned for which Christ died and removed condemnation, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's the third path. You say to yourself clearly and honestly, I am an adulterer. I have broken the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Maybe because of your marriage, maybe something you did outside of your marriage. Maybe, as Jesus expanded, just because you looked upon a woman lustfully. In other words, we're all in this. I am an adulterer. I have broken the seventh commandment. Or, I am a murderer. I have broken the sixth commandment. Perhaps because of some particular things in your past we were talking about. Perhaps because, as Jesus would expand it, you've just looked at someone and said, I hate you, you fool. You said in your heart, raka, which is just to say, fool. Jesus says, then you're all murderers, which is all of us, me included. I am a murderer. I've broken the sixth commandment. The law condemns me and you. And the law points me towards its end 
who is Christ. The end of the law, righteousness for all who believe. So you preach yourself the truth, and the truth will set you free. You preach to yourself the truth. I am a sinner. I have done that. I do that. And then you preach to yourself the good news. And Christ has died to pay for it. And the verdict has been removed. And the spigot has been turned on. The love of God poured into your heart. The grace of God. Peace with God. Not condemnation. Peace with God. Because he has said, righteous. Yeah, I know your past. That's why I sent my righteousness. And now you have entrusted him, righteous. Come in peace, experience my grace and joy and my love. Christian, I hope that you see that if you will actually not just put this as a doctrine that you have believed in the past and theoretically still hold over here in the filing cabinet, if you will take it out and stick it onto your chest onto the dashboard of your car, in your bathroom, wherever, if you will put it up there in front of you and appropriate it into life and walk in it, it should change how you live. In these particular ways, it allow you to be honest about your sin and you can't deal with something that you're not honest about. First step in solving a problem is admitting that you have one. It'll help us to pursue holiness as a people, individually and corporately, if we can be really honest about our sin and not dodge it and try to establish a righteousness based on our own works. If we can be really honest about our sin, there it is. And then be really honest about the gospel, there it is. That's how we can grow in holiness. That's what roots up holiness. The grace of God And the grace of God is larger. As we see, I needed grace all the more. Sin increases, so does grace. Not that it gives us permission to sin, but that it expands God's good, forgiving, loving grace. Believing this will will relieve the burden of guilt from your heart and will accelerate your sanctification. Liberate you from trying to establish righteousness on your own day by day by day. Believe it, Christian. Pursue righteousness by faith in Christ and not as if it is by works, because it isn't. Now, my, my final point. I want to bridge from this passage into the book of Deuteronomy and the law in general, and so I want to say a few brief things about that. I've been touching on it a little bit already as we've mentioned the law in a few different ways, but I want to make one particular statement. So here's the final point. Because of Christ, the psalmist and we can pray, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. Because of Christ, the psalmist and we can pray, open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wondrous things from out of your law. I come to this point and this is really the reason that I picked this passage at the Virgin of Deuteronomy, I come to this point as I consider what Paul's general purpose is in this passage. As I mentioned, he's answering a question about what happened when Israel kind of missed it. What's the deal? I've been focusing here on righteousness by faith in Christ, but to be honest, Paul said a whole lot more about that in the earlier chapters of Romans. He's just kind of summarizing it here. So if I wanted to really preach about that subject, I should have gone to some earlier chapters. He's answering the question, what happened with Israel? Which isn't really a question that's, that's real pertinent to us today. But there's something we can learn from it. His answer is that they missed something. So we look at the same material now from a slightly different angle. In verse 31, what did they miss? They thought they could grab the law 
to, to reach the law that was a law of righteousness. The law is good. Tells me what righteousness is. But the problem, notice very closely, look at the text. The problem is not with the law. The problem is in how they thought they could reach the law and grab hold of it and keep it. They thought they could do it by works, and they couldn't. It's by faith. They were mistaken. And so then they stumbled over what the law is really all about, the end of the law, that is the goal, the thing that the law is shooting towards is Christ. They missed it because they they weren't looking for something to believe and hope and trust. They were just thinking, we can do this in establishing it ourselves. So his answer to this question is that actually the law has always been about faith. That's the point I'm trying to make here this morning that I'm going to use to bridge into Deuteronomy in the following weeks and months. We go to the book of the law, and in many of our minds we think, oh boy, why are we even doing this? Don't we live in the gospel, the age of the gospel? Why are we going to the law? That's what we got rid of. And what Paul's arguing is that the gospel's in the law. If they had pursued it by faith, they would have been like Father Abraham who believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. I hope that these Jews, these brothers of mine would be saved like Moses and Joshua and David and the psalmists who said, I meditate on the law day and night and it prospers me. Oh, how I love your law. Open the eyes of my heart that I may behold the wondrous things in your law. These folks don't seem to think that the law is terrible and should be done away with. Actually, the law is good. Like Paul says in Romans 7, the problem is in us. But there are wondrous things to behold in the law if we will approach it like Paul is saying we should by faith. Secondly, we can now say, looking back, by faith in Jesus. Because the faith that the psalmist is exercising is, oh God, you are a refuge to me. I'm not sure how, but I know that you are a refuge to me, and so I trust you. The psalmist would walk into the sanctuary and would see there the altar and would see the sacrifices and would see the curtain that says, don't come here, but he would understand that somehow I offer this up and you say it's okay. What's this pointing to? I don't, I don't quite know, but I believe. We can look back. We're in a different spot now. We can look back and say, I know what that's pointing to. It's Jesus and the cross. So we, we look at this law now, we will look at this law, through faith in Christ and realize that the whole thing is shot through with Jesus. The whole thing is filled with grace. Deuteronomy chapter 9, as the Israelites are being brought into the land of Israel, Moses tells them, and realize that the whole Exodus journey is a type, it's a It's a prophecy, a living prophecy of what salvation looks like. People being brought out of slavery, traveling through a wilderness until they reach the promised land of rest where God dwells in their midst. That's salvation. So they're about to come into this land and three times in back-to-back verses, right in a row, God says through Moses, verses 4, 5, and 6, do not think that it is because of your own righteousness that I give you this land. Do not think that it is because of your own righteousness and uprightness of heart. Don't be tempted to think that it is because of your own righteousness. And then he polishes off in verse 6. Because in fact, you are a stubborn people. Verse 7. Who provoked me to wrath in the wilderness. So don't be confused about this, thinking that it's your own righteousness that you established that has earned for you this land of rest. No, actually, you earned wrath but I give you this anyway. That is grace. That is the gospel in Deuteronomy 9. The law. Wondrous things to behold there. And now where we stand 
in Christ with His Spirit in us, empowering us to move us and to follow His decrees. That's the promise of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. We can go back at that and look at it in a whole marvelous new light. That's what we're going to try to do in the coming months and probably years. <laughs> It'll take a little while. <laughs> we're going to see, I pray, if God gives grace, we're going to see that all of the scripture including Deuteronomy and the law, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And as we meditate on the law day and night, it will prosper us. May he give grace to us to open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of his law. Let me pray. Father, we are utterly dependent on your grace so pour it out, I pray. Pour it out now on believers here in this room and help them to appropriate the fact, to take onto themselves and to walk in, to live in the fact that you have declared them righteous and it is not because of anything they have done. And Lord, for those here who do not believe in you yet, would you pour grace on them to open their eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, to behold the gospel and to trust him to make them righteous. And would you give grace to us going ahead that you would open our eyes to show us wondrous things out of the law and make us into a holy people to live to what you have made us, a holy people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Do that work in our midst, I pray, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.